You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, thank you. Welcome to Intelligent Talk, and the website is intelligenttalk.com, intelligenttalk.com, one word. We're here with Professor uh, Gerald Steinacre. I probably have that pronounced incorrectly, but he wrote an excellent book called Nazis on the Run that I read, and I wanted to um, discuss it with him. So, Professor, thank you for coming on the program today. My pleasure. Could you please just quickly tell us how you got interested in this area and what led to this book, what your research? Well, I was always interested in history. Um, I think when I was six years old in Austria, that's where I grew up on the Austrian-Italian border, I told my parents that I want to become a historian. And then when I started at university in Austria and Italy, it was the time when Kurdwell time was running for president, for Austrian president. Oh, sure. And some of your listeners will probably still remember Kurdwell time and all the issues involved, the controversy about his wartime record. I remember that, yes. And, yeah, and, and as a young student, I, I thought maybe my own society, my own people, the Austrians, need to look more, you know, closely into their wartime record and the history of the Second World War and the Holocaust and the Austrians' role in all of this. Um, and so I decided to focus and to dedicate my professional career to the history of the Holocaust and the history of the Second World War, and especially the role of Austria and Austrians in all of this. Yes, and I... that's also the starting point for this book, Nazis on the Run, because Austria and this border region where I grew up between Italy and Austria plays such an important role in the escape of Holocaust perpetrators. And that was really my starting point for this new research. Yes, I'm not sure that people... Re of course, I remember Kurt Waldheim. I think he was. it came out in the mid-'80s. He'd been U.N. Secretary General, and he was in the Waffen-SS, I believe, doing pretty bad things, I believe, in Italy, if I recall. Um, but this was years ago. And I don't think... I don't know if a lot of people realize, but the Austrians did play a big part uh, in the German killing machine. I think, obviously, Hitler was Austrian. Eichmann was Austrian. I believe four of the six concentration camp commanders were Austrian, too. But, of course, that's for another... Another program. One of the things you start with with your research about the book about is about the tremendous displacement after World War II. I think you said 6.5 million refugees, and this sort of is the chaos of the war that allows these people to escape. Could you just talk briefly about that, please? Yeah, one element to understand how it was possible that many Holocaust perpetrators, thousands of Nazis and Nazi collaborators, managed to escape justice and managed managed to escape Nuremberg trials and denazification was the post-war situation who was very chaotic. There were millions of people on the move, millions. We're talking about uh, almost 30 million, three zero million people, refugees in Europe. Uh, and those people 
people had different backgrounds. There were ethnic Germans, more than 12 million of ethnic Germans from Central Eastern Europe were expelled after the war from their former home countries and home regions. And then, you, of course, you had former slave laborers, former prisoners of war. Uh, you had, of course, Holocaust survivors who all stranded, who lost their homeland, who couldn't go back or didn't want to go back anymore where they once lived. And so you had this really very difficult uh, refugee situation in Europe. Most of these people really stranded in what was left of Germany and Austria and Italy. So that's where most refugees stranded and many of these refugees wanted to get out of Europe and to start a new life in overseas, for example, in the Americas, in North or South America, but also in the Middle East or Australia or in other parts. And of course, the Holocaust survivors wanted to get to Palestine, uh, Israel, uh, to build a new life. So we have to keep in mind a really very immense, huge refugee situation in those years between 1945 and 1950, more or less. And uh, it's maybe a, a reminder to your listeners that we talk about, you know, big refugee problem nowadays and refugee um, emergency in Europe, in Germany particularly. But the numbers nowadays are much, 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 much smaller. And Germany and Europe is not destroyed by a war, um, but doing very well and the societies are very well off. And you can imagine how difficult it was in 1945 in a destroyed Europe to organize housing and food for these many refugees and displaced people. A lot of Germans, as I understand, after the war were kind of kicked out of countries they had previously been in, like Poland, right? And that's why it contributed to these refugees. I, someone told me that it's one of the biggest migrations in history, uh, the Germans being moved yeah. out. Yeah, there were many so-called ethnic Germans people who had a German-speaking background or cultural background, many people from the former Austrian-Hungarian monarchy who lived in Eastern and Southern Eastern European countries after 1918. And after 1945, most of them were forced out of their former homelands and home regions where they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the number is about, an estimated number is about 12 million people uh, as a huge figure, immense figure. When you have to keep in mind, Austria has only 8 million people total population. Right. And in, and, and in those years, 12 million people were expelled uh, in a very short period of time and under very dramatic circumstances. So, And they stranded, uh, as I said, in what was left Germany and Austria and Italy. And... The housing uh, was already very, very difficult to organize, very limited. I mean, most cities were bombed in Germany and Austria and Italy, too. And the food was, of course, very, uh, there was a lot of food shortage. So it was very difficult to find housing and food and provisions for these refugees. Uh, but most could not go home, and that's why many of them decided to leave Europe for good. Okay, but so uh, it was, of course, easier said than done. So, Professor, could you please comment then about how the actual rat line or the escape worked? I mean, a lot of the Germans, they would basically, as I understand from reading your book, Italy, and especially via Innsbruck, Austria, was a big area, a springboard for getting out of Europe, and also the South, the South Tyrolean region, too, of, of Austria, of Italy, sorry. Um, could you just comment yeah. on that, please? Of course. So if your listeners you know, look at the map of Europe, um, for people who are in Austria or southern Germany, uh, 
Italy is the easiest way out because in those days people would take a ship to go overseas. They wouldn't fly. And the closest port is the port of Genoa in northern Italy or Italian seaports, also Trieste, for example. That was the easiest way out. So Italy became really uh, the escape hatch, the, the highway for war criminals, as I call it. So this was the loophole um, in order to get out of Europe for these many war criminals. And uh, one reason why Italy was so popular is not just because that's where the ships left for South America or, or North America or Israel, uh, so, uh, Syria, Egypt or, or the Middle East, but it was also um, a perfect place to get new identity papers and to get money because there was no Allied control in Italy anymore after December 1945. So once these uh, Nazis uh, on the run made it to Italy, that was easy crossing the border from Austria uh, into Italy. There were no border checks. There was the green border. There were many people helping smugglers for money or uh, also friends helping to cross the border. Once you were in Italy, you were basically uh, safe because the Italian authorities were not so much interested in these people and just wanted to get rid of those uh, Nazis and others as soon as possible to leave them uh, to leave uh, for them Italy and, and go away basically. One of the very interesting parts of your book is obviously the role played by the Vatican and there's specifically a bishop Hudal H U D A L who had who I believe was Austrian and he helped and his deputy as well issued a lot of, I believe, Red Cross exit visas to a lot of, including uh, Mengele and Eichmann. Could you please describe, number one, the role of the Catholic Church, and number two, Mary Bishop Hudal, and number three, maybe why the Catholic Church cooperated and how you learned about this, please? Uh, Those are very many questions. I don't think we have those many hours, but briefly, I will try to explain it briefly, otherwise one has to read the book, really, to understand how complicated everything was in those post-war years. But um, Bishop Hudal um, was an Austrian bishop, as you mentioned, and he was in Rome, and he was basically in charge of a seminary for German-speaking priests who were living and studying in Rome. And he was, uh, you know, of a certain influence in the 1930s in the Vatican. He had some friends and support, including the Pope at that time, at least in the 1930s, and Hudel also wanted to be a bridge builder between the church, the Catholic Church, and the Nazis. He wanted to find a compromise between the Catholic Church and the Nazis, a modus vivendi, some way to live and work together into the future, basically, especially in Germany and Austria, uh, because he wasn't a nationalist, German nationalist, and he was a Catholic uh, priest, a uh, bishop too, so he wanted to combine those two things. Um, after the war, he helped many Holocaust perpetrators because they came to Italy, they heard about him, they knew he's going to help them uh, to get new travel documents from the International Committee of the Red Cross, and he would, he would basically vouch for these people. He would vouch for Franz Stangl, for example, it's a famous case. Franz Stangl was the commander of first Sobibor and then Treblinka extermination camp and was in charge um, and, and he was personally co-responsible for the murder of more than one million people, Franz Stangl. And after the war, he escaped to Italy. He went to Bishop Hudal. Hudal, um, you know, invited him and uh, welcomed him with open arms and also organized him new travel documents so he could escape 
um, to Syria first and then South America later. And the role of the Vatican, Bishop Hudal and many people like him worked in the context of the Vatican Commission for Refugees. So this was an organization that the Vatican set up in order to help those many refugees in Europe. And among those refugees were not just poor folk and victims of the Nazis, but also perpetrators. And these perpetrators often approached these Catholic aid organizations and people like Huda and asked for help and asked for support, asked for money and asked for travel papers. And uh, that's why many of these Catholic officials working inside the Vatican um, refugee organization or aid organization helped Holocaust perpetrators, especially Hudal, but he was not the only one, absolutely not. There were a number of other people who did exactly what he did, but he's the most prominent one. Now, as you mentioned, um, Hudal was friends, I believe, with Pope Pius at the time, and this was a time when there was a fear of communism. The CIA was actively engaged in trying to prevent Italy from going communist, and there was fear, obviously, of the Soviet Union expanding and all these things happening. And I guess to a degree, the Vatican looked on, some of them looked upon these Nazis as sympathetic as anti-communist figures. How high up do you think the Vatican hierarchy knew? I mean, did Pope Pius know what Hudal was doing? And, and how did you discover this? Did you get access to the research? or how, did, how were you able to do the research and learn about this? And I'm sorry to ask you so many questions. It's just so interesting. There are many questions, of course. I mean, what you do is archival research. And uh, there are many archives available now since the end of the Cold War, since the 1990s. Uh, especially in Europe, in East and West Europe, but also in the United States. Many archives, for example, from the CIA, from the CIA were declassified and are released and are accessible for researchers. So a lot of new research came out in the 1990s about these questions too and the involvement of Vatican institutions and Catholic uh, priests and uh, clergy. Um, and my research is part of this. Um, so it's based on archival evidence, archival research. I mean, what I said earlier about uh, Bishop Hudal and Stangl, the application form for Stangl's Red Cross papers are in the archives in Geneva. Of course, I looked at the application form for a Red Cross travel document for Franz Stangl, and the travel document for Franz Stangl is signed and approved by Bishop Hudal. Oh, interesting. In his okay. handwriting. It's all there. So it's also printed in my book as a uh, as, a, as an image, and, and you can look at this original document in my book, and so I look for yourself and check for yourself what evidence that we have. This is just an example, of course. Could you could you explain what the La Vista report, I may have pronounced it wrong, the La Vista report was, please? Yeah, Vincent La Vista, you asked me earlier, what did the people know at the time? I mean, it was basically an open secret. By 1947, 1948, when this was ongoing, because most of these Holocaust perpetrators and Nazis and their collaborators did not escape in 1945. They escaped later in 1946, 1947, 1948, 1949, 1950, 1950, with the Cold War heating up, um, that escape uh, basically came to an end. Actually, many of the Nazis who escaped to Argentina first, to America to other destinations came back to Europe in the 1950s because denazification was basically over and they had not much to fear anymore by coming back to Europe in those early Cold War years on the background of the Cold War. And La Vista was a State Department official in Rome and he was put in charge to study and to investigate what's going on in Italy, all these people stranding here. 
some of them have, you know, a dubious Nazi past or might be criminals. And he was investigating that, and he found out what we know. We now know that so many Holocaust perpetrators and Nazis and other criminals went through Italy, had the help of Vatican institutions, and the Red Cross, and escaped with these travel documents from the Red Cross through Italian ports, especially Genoa, to overseas. So in 1947, that was already well known to the State Department, and Vincent Lavista was one of the first State Department officials to document all of this. His report was only released in the 1980s in the context of the trial against Klaus Barbie, who was a wanted war criminal in France, um, and his trial was in France and in those years, and the State Department or the National Archives then declassified the Vincent Lavista report, who clearly detailed all those structures that we know about uh, today. So the escape of perpetrators of Nazis, of criminals, through Italy with these papers, that there was a massive abuse of these documents and also abusing the help uh, of Catholic aid organizations. That was very well known at the time. You could also read it in the newspapers, for example, in the Italian newspapers or the German newspaper, Austrian newspapers in those years, for example, 1947, 1948. And this is remarkable, given the fact that Adolf Eichmann, you know, one of the organizers of the Holocaust, he escaped in 1950 through Italy with the help of Vatican institutions and clergymen and the Red and Red Cross travel documents. So at that point in time, people knew already there is a problem with these papers. Could you also discuss the role of, of the U.S. and specifically Alan Dulles? And I'll just say, and, and you alluded to this before, that the Germans surrendered. I think it was called Operation Sunrise in your book, and that made the relatively ease of using Italy by the Germans easier because it wasn't a harsh occupation by the Allies. So the Germans had surrendered with Operation Sunrise. Alan Dulles was involved. This is a period before the CIA is created and a fear of communism is prevalent. So could you discuss, discuss briefly U.S. complicity and letting these people go and specifically Dulles as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, one really has to understand the background of the early Cold War. The former Nazis, um, as you pointed out already, they were one thing for sure, they were anti-communists. And, you know, the former, the, the enemy of my enemy is maybe not my friend, but maybe an ally. And so very soon the communist threat, the fear of communism, the danger of the Soviet Union taking over Europe became always more important to the Western allies, especially the United States, and denazification became always less important. So these former Nazis, they were now and, and generals and officers of the German army and, and so on, or experts in communism in the Soviet Union, German Nazi experts, I mean, they were now considered useful. And in many cases, you know, you had this cost-benefit analysis. Are these people more useful to us as an agent or as an asset or for other purposes now fighting the Soviets? Or should we put this guy on trial? And the case that I mentioned, Klaus Barbie, uh, who was a brutal torturer, a fanatical Nazi and a war criminal uh, in Lyon, so as the Gestapo commander in, in Lyon in France, in Nazi-occupied France, He's a good example for that. He was considered useful by the U.S. intelligence community as an asset, as an agent to fight against the communists, because that's what he did during the war. Uh, among other things, of course, he was also involved in deportation of Jews and murder of Jews. 
uh, or should he be handed over to the French authorities to be put on trial and they decided to use him as an asset and then uh, in 1951 when uh, when the French knew or heard that he was in American custody and the Americans had him they smuggled him out of Europe through Italy uh, with these travel papers from the Red Cross and he left through Italy, you know, on the red line, on this underground uh, road uh, to South America. That's how he escaped from justice in the first place. But of course, uh, he, the Americans who hired him and, and um, worked with him knew that he was a wanted war criminal. The French made it very clear that they were looking for him. But, you know, there he was considered useful for the new fight, for the new enemy, to fight the new enemy, the communists, the Soviets, and therefore they protected him. And there, of course, there are many, many of these cases that we know of and that we have learned about in, in, in recent years, since the 1990s, really, when many of these CIA documents from these early Cold War years were released. Um, and uh, so Klaus Barbie is just one of, of many, many examples. And of course, you had the technicians, you know, the experts, who knew about technology, who were experts in in the Air Force or machinery and so on, or rocket scientists like Werner von Braun. All of these people were considered useful, of course, um, for fighting the Cold War, and therefore they were protected if they had, you know, committed crimes uh, and, and were not put on trial. And Yeah, and Werner von Braun was really behind the, the V-2, V-1 rocket program. That's one of the reasons why the U.S. got to the moon, of course, was Mr. Von Braun. Isn't that correct? That's correct. I mean, he made a career. He had a career in the United States after the war. And the issue, of course, that the production of the rockets that he designed um, also involved for, you know, to a large degree at the end of the war, slave labor by prisoners of war and and, uh, and Jews and concentration camp inmates. Uh, this issue, of course, and his responsibility uh, if not guilt, uh, was not much discussed uh, because he was considered useful for uh, American uh, uh, goals, uh, first in the military and then uh, in the space industry and, and, and landing on the moon. That's correct. One of the people you also discuss is Walter Rauff, R-A-U-F-F. And he was kind of like the precursor to the Zyklon B gas with these mobile gas fans. And I think I mentioned to you via email that I was in Chile in the late 80s when there was a vote against Pinochet, see or no, on the referendum. And he was alive in, in Chile until 1984, living unmolested and allowed to live out his life. It's just amazing to me that uh, that, that was the case and, and that he was allowed to live into the mid-80s. Yeah, I mean, if you study, like, the whole topic of Nazi criminals and the early Cold War until 1989, really, like, until the end of the Cold War... Uh, you will see that that case of Walter Reif, Rauf was actually not so unusual. I mean, we now know that by the 1950s, uh, the German government knew where Eichmann was, for example, and where Mengele was. Yeah. So uh, this this was not very much of a secret. It was kind of an open secret at the time. But the interest was not there. The political will was often not there to bring these people to justice. There were other priorities. Yeah, in some cases there were trials even during the Cold War, but overall the political will was not there and it really changed only after the end of the Cold War uh, when a number of these people were extradited 
to the countries where they committed these crimes during uh, the war um, in, and, and put on trial to this very day. I mean, they're still Holocaust perpetrators and Nazis who are put on trial, um, especially in Germany. But uh, during the Cold War, this, this, uh, there were many cases where people were just protected or the interest in bringing them to justice was, was very minimal, and very often, especially South American countries, like you mentioned Chile, but also Argentina, they had a policy that they would not extradite, um, uh, you know, their own citizens or, or people they, they considered their own citizens. So it was very difficult even, you know, for German or French authorities to get hold of these people and to get them extradited from, for example, South American countries um, mm -hmm. during the Cold War years. There were cases, but this was not very common. So a person like Walter Rauf, who was so very much implicated in the Holocaust and personally responsible for the murder of so many people, so many Jews, uh, he could feel relatively safe in Chile, in Chile uh, during the, during, you know, until the end of his, his life, basically. Yes, but I just want to sort of, I, as we wind up here, I just want to finish with Argentina because you, you touched on that briefly. Uh, I believe Juan Perón was, he was sort of openly pro-German, wasn't he? I mean, officially Argentina was neutral, but he was sort of an ally of the Germans. He admired them. And Argentina was arguably the country with the most pro-Nazi sympathies at the end of the war. Would you say that's, that's fair to say? That's, of course, where Eichmann ended up. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that, okay. uh, I would say, because Argentina is only one destination for collaborators and Nazi criminals. There were other destinations in South America, but also the United States was a destination, or Canada, or as I mentioned earlier, Syria, or Egypt, uh, other countries as well. Argentina, I think, is the best documented case. This is one reason. And the other reason is, and that's certainly true, you're right, it was particularly popular among Nazis and, and, and the Nazi supporters and collaborators and fascists from all over Europe because they knew that uh, Juan Perón had certain sympathies for fascism, not just Hitler, but particularly also Mussolini. Perón was an exchange officer in Italy during the Mussolini years. So he studied fascism, Mussolini, Italy firsthand, and was very impressed uh, in what he saw. So Argentina certainly was a particularly safe haven during the Perón years until 55 for people of such a background, of a Nazi background, and and fascist background, but it's also true, and we should not forget, Argentina was also the destination for many Holocaust survivors as well, and refugees from the 1930s, Jews who had to flee Austria and Germany. Many of them escaped to Argentina and lived, for example, in Buenos Aires, in large Jewish communities. So you actually had two, at least two German-speaking communities in Argentina after the war. One was Jewish and anti-Nazi, and the other community, of course, were these old Nazis. Right. Well, I just wanted to say, Professor, thank you so much for your time. Obviously, your book is uh, Nazis on the Run. It's been very interesting speaking with you, and thank you so much for coming on and answering all these questions. My pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com
If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA health care facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galitos also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galitos also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galitos is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station. You can call Galitos at area code 914-668-0100. Once again, the number is area code 914-668-0100. For information on reservations, or go to the website at www.galitosrestaurant.com. Enjoy your dining experience. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine. The Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, conveniently located near public transportation. 
For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, Conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. Guests at From Farm to Tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotray.org for details. See you at the Soup Kitchen. Sparky the Fire Dog here. Protect your family from fire. Make sure your home has smoke alarms in every bedroom, outside your sleeping areas, and on every level of your home, even your basement. For games and activities, go to sparky.org. We want to keep you, your family, and your community safer from fire. This message brought to you by the National Fire Protection Association and your local fire department. Visit sparky.org. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. Guests at Farm to Tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotrade.org for details. Hi there, I'm Tim McGraw. One of the great things about music is how it brings people together. Kids like to hang out, listen to music, and talk about what's hot and what's not on the music scene. And playing instruments and singing provides a way for young people to get together and interact in a cooperative and respectful way. Kids who play in school ensembles understand that every part has to work together for the result to be the magical art called music. Your local school music programs provide a golden opportunity for your child to experience the rewards of learning music. Why not pay a visit to the music teacher to find out what's going on? 
Get your kids involved with school music. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, Gibson Musical Instruments, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education.